0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: I'm very willing to say that the claims made by the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics are hard to believe at first blush, but so are the claims of the textbook version of quantum mechanics. And the difference is the many worlds interpretation is well-defined. It's rigorously based on equations that have been tested in experiment over and over again.
0: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, playing in whatever branch of our many quantum realities you happen to be listening in. This is a wonderfully fun, interesting, mind blowing podcast. Uh, My guest is Sean Carroll. He is a theoretical physicist at Caltech. He's the host of the Mindscape podcast, but also the author of the beautiful book, Something Deeply Hidden. Which did something very useful for me, which is it made me more confident in what it is that I don't understand at all about quantum physics and created space to have, for me to have a conversation, trying to clarify those misunderstandings instead of simply being afraid of how stupid (laughs) I look and feel when faced with them. So this is uh, something a little bit different, but it is incredibly cleansing and diverting in this moment. It is nice to imagine that there are other branches of reality but our own that maybe are not having this particular problem. And it is fun to think about this. If all, if everything I'm saying to you sounds crazy, just wait. This episode, it only gets crazier. But it also might be true. <laughs> the world does not make us any promise that the way it works is the way we intuit it as working. As always, my email is Ezra at Box.com. Here is Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ezra. So I downloaded this app that you recommend in your book. It's called Universe Splitter. And I just clicked on take a chance and I told
1: the universe to split. So can you tell me what you think just happened? (laughs) So what happened is that app sent a signal across the internet to a laboratory in Switzerland. That laboratory has a little gizmo in it. It's not a big deal, not like a large Hadron Collider, billions of dollars, little tabletop thing where a photon was sent down a pipe and then it was split. The quantum mechanical state of the photon went half to the left, half to the right. And then when you observe it, you get an answer back that says it went right or it went left. And what I believe happened is that there's another world a whole other universe brought into existence where the other outcome was observed. So that's fucking crazy, obviously. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and... What
0: I want to do in this whole podcast is explore that. And, and I want to maybe give the audience a, a quick uh, note about what's going on here. I've asked for questions from, from the audience and got a bunch. And I've read um, Sean's book, which I loved and have a bunch of my own. And oftentimes I try to come into these conversations and and be knowledgeable and, you know, be an informed interlocutor and today i am not and the one thing i'm going to promise everybody including you sean and i'm sorry for everything that's about to happen is i am not going to try to sound smart on this podcast I am going to just keep asking when I don't understand things because I don't understand anything at all in this space, including a bunch of things that I have learned and have pretended to understand for a long time. So, are you ready to maybe answer a lot of possibly dumb questions? I predict you will understand absolutely everything perfectly. Amazing! I can't. I I can't wait. Okay, imagine I'm a smart ten year old. Maybe for the rest of the the show. Um, I think the thing that a lot of us know about quantum mechanics is that upon observation, which is what happened when I clicked into that app, upon observation of a certain kind of event, a wave collapses down to a particle when observed, which seems to imply some very important role for the observer in changing the nature of reality. Can you just explain what that is in the normal understanding in the simplest terms possible?
1: Yeah, you know, this is you're right at the fundamental mystery of quantum mechanics. I should say that quantum mechanics is simultaneously the best theory that we currently have about how the universe works at a deep level and something the physicists do not agree about what it fundamentally says or means or how it works. And this act of measurement, the fact that when we teach quantum mechanics to our students, we tell them a bunch of rules that not only say what quantum states, what systems do when they're evolving according to equations, etc., but there's a whole set of rules devoted to what happens when you measure something, when you observe something. And no other theory of physics has that property. But what we teach, our students is that an electron, for example, a single tiny elementary particle behaves like a wave when you're not looking at it. So when it's, whether it's settled down into an atom to make you know molecules, et cetera, or whether it's flitting around in the laboratory, it obeys an equation invented by Professor Schrodinger called the Schrodinger equation, which is a wave. It waves up and down, et etc. et cetera. But you never see that wave. You never observe that wave in action. When you observe, observe it, when you measure it, you always see the electron as a particle, as located at a point in space. And so I, I have my own opinions and we can go into them. But this question of what it really means to observe something, what counts, what does an observer actually do? These are the fundamental mysteries of quantum mechanics.
0: Okay. And there's a lot of terminology in here that is confusing, and I'm going to continue asking questions like this, but wave. I think a lot of people believe that we know what a wave means. And I thought I knew what wave meant until uh, I read your book, but it sounds like wave in this case does not mean what it means when we normally talk about, say, a wave in the ocean or the shape of a wave. What is a wave?
1: Yeah. So this is just the fault of physicists for not cleaning up their nomenclature many, many years ago. You know, in the 1800s, that was the heyday of waves because Maxwell and Faraday and other people understood electricity and magnetism. And we understood, for example, that light is a wave in the electric and magnetic fields that pervade all of space. And those waves are, you know, part and parcel of the fundamental nature of reality. But Basically, they're like waves on the ocean. There's something and it goes up and it goes down and it sort of oscillates in waves. And when quantum mechanics first came along and people started saying, well, these waves of light, people like Max Planck and Albert Einstein these waves have particle-like properties. When you observe them in a certain way, they look like particles. And then other people started saying, well, things that we think are particles, like electrons, have wave-like properties as well. And we invented this terminology called the wave function for what it is that represents a quantum mechanical system when you're not measuring it. But it's really not a wave in the old-fashioned sense. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at, and you are right to be annoyed by this. So waves are still waves, but. Quantum mechanical wave functions look like waves if things are very, very simple. If you just have one particle, nothing else in the universe. As soon as you go beyond that, as soon as you want to have two particles and talk about their quantum mechanical goings on, then it's not like a wave propagating through space, but we still call it a wave function. What you should call it is the quantum state of the two particle system. And then you can answer very definite questions like, what will you see when you measure it? What does it do when you're not measuring it? Okay, but but let me ask the question maybe even a different way, because reading your book,
0: the way I would now explain it, and you can tell me if I've totally misunderstood this, is that if I had quantum vision and I was looking at an electron in superposition, which is to say, like an electron in its wave, I might I might even have this part wrong. Uh, an electron an electron in its wave state, what I would see is like a probability field. That it's basically when you say it's a wave, that it is somehow occupying in a probabilistic way all of the positions it can possibly be in. Is that right or is that wrong? There is something right about that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Let's put no, it that way. No, that's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here, here's the problem. If we never observed quantum mechanical systems, if we never measured them, then the word probability would never come into anything. There would just be a wave function. It would evolve deterministically. It would be almost like classical mechanics in the sense that you just have a wave. Okay, none of, those it, were, none, none of those words made sense. Um, okay. What would I see if I could see it? It would be a for one electron. It would be a big cloud. It would be spread out all over. There would be a different value of the wave function of the electron at every point in space. I just want to undo the word probability that appeared in your statement. Why? What is wrong with the word probability there? Because the word the probabilities only show up when you observe it. If you're not observing it, it is just a wave. It's very much like a wave on the ocean. The probability comes in because when you observe it, you never see the wave. There's no such thing as quantum vision. But what you see is the electron is located at a particular point. And what the wave told you is the probability that you would observe it at one point rather than another. Got it. Sort of. Okay. Um, So,
0: this is where it seems to me like the conversation about quantum mechanics has branched into two things. On the one hand, a lot of people love this idea, and many of us have encountered it in a lot of spiritual literature. Um, Buddhists love all this, right? That there's some entanglement between conscious observation of the world and what is happening in the world. It it, it really puts humans at the center of the story in an interesting way, and human consciousness and something non material. And then a lot of physicists like Einstein loathed it. There's a story of Einstein walking with someone and saying, you know, do you really believe the moon exists only when I look at it? So do you think this is entangled with consciousness? Is this something about me or someone or some observer watching it and taking a measurement? Or is there a misunderstanding there um, to make Einstein happier?
1: No, it has nothing to do with consciousness whatsoever. And at this point, I'm going to start saying things that I think are, I believe are true or with 99% confidence, but other people do disagree with me. But the vast, vast, vast majority of working physicists agree that you don't need to talk about consciousness in any way to make sense of quantum mechanics. We can understand why you might have thought that. The word observation appears in there, but we know now that the observations can be perfectly well done by video cameras or rocks or just photons bouncing around the room you don't need to talk about consciousness perception people agents or any of those things wait how can an observation be done by a rock well you know you kick the rock it flips over now the state of the rock is different it has a record that you kicked it over very much, it's not that different than a camera, right? I mean, there's physical things in the world that can interact with each other. In in my favorite way of thinking about quantum mechanics, an observation is just when a quantum system becomes entangled with the wider world around it. It's entirely physical, has nothing to do with consciousness. And so in a way, observation, a little bit like wave
0: it has a somewhat different meaning here. How would you define observation in this context? Because it doesn't, I think, mean what I mean when I say somebody or something made an observation.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we like to use the word measurement in quantum mechanics, but again, we, the meaning of that word slides into a different meaning over time and we never tell anybody. Again, the specific quantum mechanical meaning of a measurement is when you have a system like an electron that is all fuzzy, right? It has its wave, it's all spread out, and then you bring it into interaction with the rest of the world in such a way that the rest of the world is sensitive to where the electron may have been within that cloud. To me, I would argue it looks like the world splits into many, many copies, and in every one of them, the electron is now located at a place. But the act of doing it was just physics, was just some other physical object bumping into the electron, nothing mystical about it. So why is the word observation and not like collision? Well, because it took a long time to figure this out. You know, the this is the scandal of the early days of quantum mechanics is that on the one hand, it was an enormously impressive intellectual achievement to put together quantum mechanics over the course of the nineteen teens, nineteen twenties. On the other hand, they sort of stopped thinking about it before they were done. And this sort of conventional wisdom hardened where there's observers like you and me who are obeying the rules of classical Newtonian physics. We don't have wave functions. We're not quantum mechanical. We observe things that are quantum mechanical. And there's an interaction between this big classical observer and this tiny quantum system. And then a whole bunch of people, starting in the 1950s especially and up to the present day, we're like, what do you mean by that? Like, I'm made of atoms. How could you say atoms are quantum mechanical? And I'm not. That makes no sense. So these days we treat everything quantum mechanically. And it's sort of a regret of history that we use this language of measurement and observation. Okay. I think this is what I'm going to do here, if it's okay with you. What you explained in the book
0: from like exactly this point forward blew my mind a bit. And so what I want to do is try to say to you what I read. Yep, and you can tell me which part I got completely wrong. So, as I understand your view on this, which is uh, which goes into the Everettian many worlds view, right? This is what, how we get back to the universe splitting app. Yeah, what happened here? The mistake is that we thought that we were these like big classical beings observing a quantum system. Mm-hmm. And that your view, uh, and that of many other physicists, is that we are quantum all the way up. Nothing about us being big makes us classical. And so the mistake is that we like created this distinction. But in reality, what is happening is that the reason the wave becomes a particle is not that anything happened to it in terms of like our observation changing it. It's that we are simply the version of ourselves or living in the universe where... The wave became that particular particle, where the probability collapsed into that outcome. But there's another us in another universe that is looking at the opposite outcome. Is that basically right? Yeah, that's completely 100% correct. And so the issue here <laughs> is that, like, we are not. Um, I think I said this to over email, but to 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 rip off the old spiritual bumper sticker, like we're not classical beings having a quantum
1: experience were quantum beings having a classical experience. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, to be fair, there's a good reason why people were reluctant to think of ourselves as quantum mechanical from the start, which is that if you give yourself a wave function and you ask what happens when I observe the electron, I become entangled with the electron. We can go into what it means to be entangled, but basically the state of me becomes related to the state of the electron in an intimate way. And what that means is that the apparent prediction of quantum mechanics is not that I see the electron at one location and not any others. It's that I evolve into a superposition of having seen many different things. And people would look at that and go, well, But I didn't. I never felt like I was in a superposition of many different things. I I always see the electron located somewhere. And it was sort of the intellectual courage of Hugh Everett when he was a graduate student to say, that's because all these different copies of you are separate. You are not the sum of all the copies of people who saw all the electrons in different places. Those are now different people. It's like he used the analogy of an amoeba that splits into two and it has the same memories uh, as the one amoeba that it used to be but they're now different. They're separate. And it's not adding anything to the formalism of quantum mechanics. It's just taking the formalism of quantum mechanics at face value.
0: So what we've done here is we've replaced one very hard to believe thing is very unintuitive with another very hard to believe thing that is unintuitive, but mathematically simpler, as I understand it, which is, The theory, as understood before, was that somehow the act of observation, for whatever definition we use of observation, was changing reality. And now the theory is that reality isn't changing, it is just branching, constantly splitting into parallel realities all of the time. I guess let me ask the question this way. How many times a minute under this theory is reality splitting into an infinitesimally different copy of itself?
1: Well, we don't know the exact answer to that, but it is safe to say many, 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 many. (laughs) One example I like to use is in your body, in the body of a typical human-sized person made of typical chemicals that humans are made out of, a nucleus of an atom decays radioactively about 5,000 times per second, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not. There's a lot of atoms in your body. And every one of those decays, if you think, if you just simplify your life and say, well, it could have happened or not happened, every one of those decays 5000 times a second splits the universe in two either it happened or it didn't so that's 2 to the power 5000 branches of the universe just caused by radioactive decays in your body every second so it's a lot <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess no further questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but let me just let me just add on because you said it very correctly. I think when you said uh, we replaced one hard to believe thing with another hard to believe thing, I'm very willing to say that the claims made by the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics are hard to believe at first blush, but so are the claims of the textbook version of quantum mechanics. And the difference is the many worlds interpretation is well defined. It's rigorously based on equations that have been tested in experiment over and over again. So you can choose to disbelieve the prediction of the equations, which is fine, but you have to change them, right? You have to say, okay, I'm going to mess with the equations of quantum mechanics somehow. And people have done that. There are alternatives to many worlds where they do violence to the fundamental equations of quantum mechanics in order to get rid of the other worlds.
0: Yes. Nobody has ever promised any of us the universe is going to be easy to believe in its full and awesome reality. So I'm going to ask people to stick with us here. There's something um, Pete Holmes, who's a podcaster I like, who likes to say on his podcast, and he's more on the spiritual um, realm of this stuff, but he's like, wouldn't it be even just fun to think about this? So if it all sounds crazy maybe just approach the rest of this conversation with a spirit of curiosity <laughs> and exploration. Um, okay. So the universe is branching an uncountable number of times every second, millisecond, etc. Yeah. Where are all these universes? And I recognize what you're about to correct here, in space.
1: Yep. So the thing to think of is that the universes are not located in space. Space is located in each universe, in each universe, each world, as we say in quantum mechanics, comes with its own copy of space. And there is a mathematical big structure where all the worlds are located, but it's not like a location you could come visit. It's not like the dark dimension in Doctor Strange, where you go you know, through a wormhole and there you are. It's just a parallel, simultaneously existing copy of your reality. It's not located anywhere.
0: So, this is, I think, for me, the hardest part of it to believe because, in my classical experience of the world, things exist in space. You imagine it has to be somewhere. So, space in this is not nearly as fundamental a feature of reality as our intuition would have it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that's a big deal. And we're still coming to grips with that. I mean, physicists and philosophers for centuries have put space and time also front and center as the the arena on which the world plays out and we're saying here in quantum mechanics no <laughs> it's just one little slice of a much much bigger reality and it's it's an example of Uh, extraordinary simplicity and elegance of beauty of the underlying ideas giving rise to an extraordinary complication in the realization of those ideas into our reality. And so it's I get it if people are like, nope, that's too much for me. You know, that's too much reality. I just like the little reality that I see. But uh, you explain what we do see in our reality a lot more elegantly by just accepting that all these other worlds are out there. I'm gonna try an analogy here on you, and you can tell me if it's dumb. So
0: I'm not saying I believe in the simulation hypothesis, which I actually don't <laughs> believe in, but but for a minute, like imagine yeah. you're a character in a computer game and you're having this conversation, or we're a character in a simulation and having this conversation, and behind it is like some force or person or whatever who can just control C, control V, all of the code of that game into another window and just then run a parallel version of it and do it again and do it again and do it again until all the memory runs out. So it's like if you are in the game, the idea that there's a world outside of it would seem absurd. But on the other hand, we actually sort of have something that is like that on our computers all the time where we can, you know, I wrote a book, I can copy and paste another version of that book into another window on Apple pages without any problem whatsoever, because it is not actually the confines of the page I'm looking at that are the confines of, and here I know this is going to begin to break down, the storage or the memory or the the possible space.
1: Is that sort of reasonable? It's kind of reasonable. The only difficulty here is that we have trouble with analogies like this, because inevitably we put things in space, right? Like we live in this three-dimensional space all around us. (laughs) And so uh, you can get plenty of copies of your book, but they're all, someone's going to say, those aren't, you know, not located in space. There they are. So you have to sort of let your imagination move from these copies located in our three-dimensional space to the copies of the universe located in a much, 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 much bigger mathematical structure that we can describe very precisely, but you can't like see it or touch it or go visit. Okay, but I'm going to turn this back on all of you because when you talk about this, you call it Hilbert
0: space, which again makes it sound like there's some space. So what what is Hilbert space describing? Like what is the... It, it, as I understand how you've described Hilbert space, there is some limit on how much of this there can be. So what is that limit?
1: Well, we actually don't know. I mean, this and again, a good question where we physicists should have figured this out a long time ago, but we kind of abandoned the pursuit of these kinds of questions for a while and are now coming back to them. How many dimensions, we would ask, are in the Hilbert space describing the real world? You know, a single electron, just if you take the old-fashioned First quantum mechanical explorations by Bohr and Schrodinger and people like that, a single electron requires an infinite dimensional Hilbert space to actually describe it. And modern explorations suggest that maybe Hilbert space is not infinite dimensional, but just really, really, really big, like 10 to the power 10 to the power 120, which is still pretty big, you know, practically infinity, really, but not exactly infinity. And all of these numbers are just mind-bogglingly beyond the capability of, of us to visualize what's going on, but the equations are pretty cut and dried. So let's talk about dimensions for a minute, because this is one of the many
0: things I've always been confused by. So we have a kind of sense that dimensions describe features of our world up until basically like four, right? So like one is something and two is depth and three is some, right? Like 2D is like a video game and then 3D is when the game has depth and then 4D is something about time. And now you're talking about the possibility of infinite dimensionality. So when you begin to go into that, are they all describing the addition of some manipulable like force or is this some or does does dimension mean something else when you begin talking about the thirteenth dimension or the hundred millionth dimension?
1: Yeah. So there's two things going on here. One is that, of course, again, we have abused our words. Both the word space and the word dimension mean slightly different things to a physicist or mathematician than they do to a person on the street. So you are familiar with uh, reasoning beyond just three dimensions. You know, when when people talk about big data, when you have a data set about, you know, people in the United States and you describe them by gender and age and health and education level and income, you can say that's a large dimensional space of how you describe people, right? Every different parameter that describes a person is a dimension in that particular space. And so this idea of the dimensions of Hilbert space has nothing whatsoever to do with the three dimensions around you, up, down, left, right, forward, backward. It is just a mathematical way of talking about how many different possible quantum states of the universe could there be. So that's one thing. The other thing is, there is a you know a, an intuition that we should be able to ask what these wave functions or quantum states are made of. <laughs> like, what is the stuff? And then the only answer, which is not very satisfying is, no, no, no. This is the stuff. This is the stuff out of which everything else is made. There's nothing out of which wave functions are made. The universe is a wave function and you can't go any deeper than that. It's not made of anything tinier. The point of stuff there seems is another point.
0: I want to say where people trip up, but we're definitely just I trip up. I mean, we are used to like we hear about the conservation of energy, and then, of course, matter seems like there's only so much of it, and so the idea that we are splitting into universes that have like exactly this much matter and all this energy seems like it violates both a law of thermodynamics and certainly
1: intuition. So, how how is that happening? Yeah, well, certainly intuition. That that is absolutely okay. I think this is the question, you know, where does the energy come from that I struggle with the most in terms of how to explain it? Because mathematically, it's like not even a question. It's just perfectly obvious what is happening. What's happening is there are two different notions of the energy. There's sort of the god's eye view of the energy of the whole set of all universes. And that is conserved. That is just constant. That is absolutely not changing over time, according to the many worlds interpretation. But then there is the energy. Sorry, before you go off of that, why? Like, what
0: am I getting wrong in my intuition that the mathematical god's eye view corrects? Well,
1: because the way that you calculate the well, actually, let let me finish the second thing because then I can use it for the first thing. The second thing is the view, the energy that you would attribute to stuff from the inside, right? When you are measuring the spin of the electron or whatever, wherever it is, you can attach to that electron a certain energy in terms of its velocity and stuff like that. And then you might think that the energy of the whole shebang is just taking all the energies of the individual universes and adding them together. And that seems to be growing with time, right, as you get more and more universes, But that's not true. They are weighted by a certain factor. Basically, every universe in this ensemble comes with a certain thickness. And you multiply the energy inside the universe by that thickness and then add them all together. And what's happening is... Over time, the universe is splitting and there are more and more differentiated universes, but they're also thinner and thinner and thinner. They are contributing less and less and less to the energy of the universe. It's just a, you know, a stick of butter that you keep slicing. You don't make more and more butter, but you make thinner and thinner slices. And sorry, the thinner is coming from what? Like what is a stick of butter in this? (laughs) The stick of butter is the wave function of the universe. And the thickness of any one little slice of butter that you have cut is something is the value of the wave function attached to that particular universe. So remember, the wave function is not really a wave. It's this abstract set of numbers. And every universe comes with a number, which we call the amplitude For that universe. So, when you say that uh, you're going to get a 50 50 chance in your universe splitter app of the photon going one way and the photon going the other way, that number, 50 50, the 50% probability, comes from the wave function of the photon being in two equally sized pieces. And that size is the amplitude. That size of the wave function of the photon is what gives you the thickness of the world that you're in. So I have a question that I'm not even sure quite sure how to ask on this, which is what
0: it sounds like you're saying there when we talk about the wave function is that there is this equation that describes the universe. And normally the way one would think about that is like, okay, the equation is an approximation of what's going on and and, and we're the reality of it. Um, In many ways, it kind of sounds here like the equation is the reality of what's going on and we're the approximation of it. Um, which is to say that, like, in your view, just what is real? like how how would you describe that? I mean, or is this actually just a world of I have heard it described, including on your show, actually, by Max Tegmark in an episode I did not understand whatsoever, <laughs> that like possibly the ultimate reality is simply mathematical, and that somehow we are representations of that. But, like, what like when you say the wave function, it sounds like that's just an equation, but you mean something more real. So what what is it you what what is the wave function?
1: Yeah, so just to be super duper clear, um, we don't need to lean into uh, Max's idea of all mathematical structures are real in some sense. What, what I'm saying is there's a particular mathematical structure which describes the universe more or less exactly, and that one thing is real. And so what I think is real is the universe, and it is described mathematically by this thing we call the wave function that obeys a certain equation, and again it's this it's, it's irresistible to think that we're allowed to ask, well, what is it made of? <laughs> what is it really? And what I'm saying is it's the universe. It's it's the nameless. I don't know. There's probably some good Buddhist way of talking about this, but it's the thing about which one should not speak, Wittgenstein would, would tell us. It's You can't ask what the universe is made of. It's the universe. What you can do is ask what it does, how it changes over time, what happens when you observe it in different ways. And that's what the formal of quantum mechanics sets you up to do beautifully well. It's funny. There's a way in which I think I was
0: afraid to talk about this stuff for a long time because I'd heard so many um, quantum physicists and and science people get mad at like spiritual folks for, for bastardizing it. But there's a funny way in which the language, you can see how it happened and where the language does begin to converge. I mean, there is a lot... I don't exactly want to say unknown here, but indescribable. I mean, it seems to me true in your understanding of this, that what we observe as reality is an unbelievably small slice of what reality is or what we observe the universe to be. Like we as humans, not even we as mathematicians, um, which I'm not, is just really small. Like we are, we are really looking at the shadow on the shadow on the shadow of the cave wall.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that is, again, I'm happy to admit a legitimate cause for worry, because what you're doing here, what people like me are asking the rest of the world to do is to say, OK, I, I do some experiments. I measure some properties of electrons and other elementary particles, and I come up with a formalism involving functions and equations and so forth that can predict these things. And what I want to suggest is we should reify that formalism. We should say, yes, this formalism works so well that what it describes is how we should think about re reality, and that implies the existence of a whole bunch more reality that we will never observe. And what it turns out is that if you want to sort of say, I want to keep the part of that formalism that describes the reality we do observe, and I want to erase all the parts that are just out there unobservable, that turns out to be really hard to do. And you don't make anything better. You don't fix any problems. You just sort of make yourself feel better. I like to say that uh, Hugh Everett, his contribution was as much therapeutic as scientific. Basically, he's saying, yeah, there's a lot of reality out there that we don't see, and that's okay. (laughs) You should go ahead and live your life as it is
0: not every physicist believes the Everettian many worlds interpretation. So let's say the universe, that which should not be spoken of and cannot be named, came to you tomorrow and said, Everettian many worlds is not true, and I cannot tell you why. What is the competing theory
1: you would go to next? I think the next best theory is uh, some version of a hidden variables kind of theory. You know, this was an old idea, the early days of quantum mechanics, which really was, was perfected in some sense by David Bohm, who is a very interesting character in his own right, inspired by Einstein telling him to think about it. And basically, the idea is you have this wave function, just like you do in regular quantum mechanics. But instead of saying that the wave function describes reality, reality is something much, much smaller. And reality is a set of things we don't know what this is why this kind of approach is not very appealing to me, but we don't know what reality is, but it's much simpler and smaller. Than the quantum mechanical wave function, and it is guided by the quantum mechanical wave function, and we don't know what exactly reality is doing. That's why when we make observations we can only predict probabilities, we can't predict certainties. If we knew what reality was actually doing then we could predict things, but we can't know, we don't know, we will never know. And to people like me, um, This is unsatisfying for a couple of reasons, one of of which is just it it seems to be extra baggage that we don't need. If you just accept the simple lean and mean formalism that Everett gives us, you get all the same experimental predictions. And as long as you learn to live with it, the existence of all these other universes, you should be fine. Does it seem odd to you as in something
0: that needs to be explained or would not be anticipated that reality in its full splendor and bizarreness can be described through the language of mathematics so well. Should we be confused that math
1: works this well? So I have an angle on that, which is no, we should not not be surprised. I think that no matter what reality ended up being, at least conditionalized on the fact that we exist, that, you know, thinking creatures exist in this version of reality, there would be some way of describing it. And that way would be pretty darn mathematical. What does amaze me is that we have gotten as far as we have, right? I mean, the vision of reality given to us by quantum mechanics, as we've been discussing, is really far away from our everyday intuition or even, you know, what Isaac Newton And Galileo would have thought reality was. And it's been an astonishing leap from the crisp, clean clockwork universe of Galileo and Newton to this gigantic reality description that seems very mathematical but keeps getting tested in the experiments and keeps working. So I think that uh, until something better comes along, we should accept this view provisionally and try to improve upon it and try to understand what it says. All right. If we accept this view,
0: I want to talk a bit about what implications it, it may have for our lives. Um One thing that this does not imply, which you talk a bit about in the book, but I think is a natural question for people to have, is that every possible version of reality exists. That there's like a reality right now where I spontaneously combust and a reality right now where I turn into a many-headed hydra and a reality right now where I'm like just a couple of minutes ago instantly understood how to play the entirety of the corpus of violin music and Mm -hmm. realized I was in fact a concert-level violinist, that that's not how this works. That the way reality is branching is not based on anything we could decide or imagine or do, but it's like electrons are somehow the protagonist of the story. Can you talk a (laughs) bit about that question of like what kinds of realities are existing here and what are their constraints?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot going on here. Uh, at, at the most basic level, it is certainly false that everything happens somewhere because you have an equation, the Schrodinger equation, and what happens is what the Schrodinger equation allows to happen. And some things it just doesn't allow. For example, an electron cannot turn into a proton because an electron has a negative charge and a proton has a positive charge and the total charge is always remains the same. So some things are just not going to happen. On the other hand, there are out there in the wave function of the universe a whole lot of really weird things going on. I mean, maybe I I can't promise that there's not a world in which a version of you is able to play the violin really, really well. But number one, that's not you, right? That's just like a twin sibling is not you. It's uh, someone who used to be the same person as you, but is now completely different, okay? So it's not like you have that ability, but there's another version of you that came from the same starting point that now has that ability. And number two, these universes are really, 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 really unlikely for you to find yourself in. So there are universes that when I put a coffee mug down on the table, it quantum tunnels right through the table, and lands on the floor. That is something that absolutely does exist in the wave function of the universe. But the chances of me finding myself in that universe are so incredibly tiny that I don't worry about it. And in fact, I would argue, what I try to argue in the book is, just because these weird, bizarre universes exist, if you admit that they're unlikely, which they are, you shouldn't pay them any more attention than you would if you thought that quantum mechanics was truly random and stochastic and they're just unlikely things to happen. I mean, if you're not likely to experience those things, why should it bother you? What does quantum tunneling mean? Quantum tunneling is a very real thing where you can imagine, you know, it, it comes from the idea that we think about an electron in an atom or a particle in the nucleus of an atom, almost like a ball rolling down a landscape of, of hills going up and down. And classically, you know, if a ball rolls into a valley it's just going to sit there. It's not going to go anywhere else, even if there's a lower valley next door because there's a hill in between. But quantum mechanically, the wave function of that ball can let it tunnel under the hill and spontaneously pop out and then roll down into the deeper valley. So quantum tunneling is just a way of saying that there are things that do have a certain non-zero probability of happening quantum mechanically, even though classically they would be completely forbidden.
0: So one question I got from a listener is... Why doesn't Mr. Carroll prodigiously play the lottery? If his multiverse theory is true and the math supports it, isn't it irresponsible for him not to? At least buying a $2 ticket every day would put all of his infinite selves in a better place. And sure, the probabilities might be low, but yeah,
1: why why don't you buy a lottery ticket each day? Well, because the overwhelming majority of me's would not win it, right? If I add up all the money both spent and earned in that scheme by all the copies of me, I'd be bleeding money very, very quickly. And I don't want to do that. So I, again, I, I do want to emphasize this because it's this a very common thing that people leap to the super duper unlikely universes in the Everettian ensemble and say, well, what about that? And the response should always be well that 's really, really unlikely uh don't worry about that. <laughs> worry about the things that are more likely and by really, really unlikely we don 't mean a one percent chance. We mean a one divided by one 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 zero 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 with uh you know ten to the ten zeros chance it 's not very likely so we've mentioned schrodinger 's
0: equation here, which it's pretty cool, if this is true, to be the guy who came up with the equation that describes all of reality. That's mm. a, that's a yeah. neat legacy to hold. <laughs> but I think what most of us know Schrodinger for is something about a cat. Yes. And I've heard his cat-in-a-box thought experiment a million times. Not only that, but my dad and stepmom bought my son a book for like, for like toddlers about Schrodinger's cat. So I even have like a children's book about this experiment. <laughs> And I don't understand why it is important or famous. So can you explain what it is about the Schrodinger's cat uh, thought experiment that has made it such a touchstone in these conversations? What am I missing?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating story, like the, the history of quantum mechanics and these these colorful characters who are involved is just endlessly fascinating. So Schrodinger came up with his equation and, you know, he and everyone else was thinking of it as very similarly to the way that people thought of the equations for electromagnetic waves that Maxwell had. He thought that electrons look like particles because his equation would describe a wave that really sort of bunched up just into one location and was zero everywhere else. But it turns out when you solve the equation, it's the opposite. If you just let an electron loose in empty space, the Schrodinger equation says it spreads out all over space. And that's never what we see. So someone else, Max Born, actually, a German physicist, came up with this idea that really what the Schrodinger equation describes is the probability of observing different things, right? And Schrodinger himself never liked that. He never liked the idea that When you observe the wave, the wave function that his equation describes collapses onto one value and then disappears all the other values. So he came up with this thought experiment in correspondence with Einstein, actually, because neither one of them really liked this idea. And the, the point of it was to take the idea that a tiny quantum system can be in a superposition. So when you say an electron is in a superposition of different possible locations, you're not saying in quantum mechanics, the electron is somewhere, but we don't know where. You're saying that it truly is a combination of all these different places at once. So in Schrodinger's thought experiment, he amplifies that uncertainty to a cat and he picked, you know, he killed the cat. His, his daughter said, I think my father just didn't like cats. So he has this experiment where in a closed box, a cat is in a quantum superposition of being both alive and dead. And in my book, I change it to being asleep and awake. I put sleeping gas in there instead of cyanide because there's no reason to kill the cat. But the point of the experiment was, Schrodinger says... What you're telling me is that the state of the cat in the box is neither alive nor dead until I open it and measure it and look at it and observe it. And then suddenly and unpredictably, it collapses and is now only ever 100 percent alive or 100 percent dead. Are you crazy? Do you really believe that? And uh People, you know, it was it was really just, you know, an expression of anxiety, the Schrodinger cat thought experiment. And someone who believes in many worlds says, well, yeah, there's a world where the cat's alive and a world where the cat's dead. It's never both at once because the world splits long before it gets to the cat level of things. So just to to reflect this back at
0: you, the issue here is that Schrodinger, who I, I love the idea that you might come up with the ultimate equation of all reality and you don't like it yeah. and you're mad <laughs> at it and you didn't understand what it said in the first place. Um, But so Schrodinger comes up with this experiment. And he's making the Einstein, do you really believe the moon isn't there if I'm not looking at it point? He's saying it seems ridiculous to give the observer this much power. Like the cat is either alive or dead in the box and it has nothing to do with what happens when I open the box. Like that's absurd. And you're the, the Everettian many worlds rebuttal is that, yeah, you actually have no role in the box at all. It's just one of you is in the world where the cat is alive and one of you is in the world where the cat is dead. So don't worry about it. It's just uh, it's just a branching issue, not a observer
1: effect issue. That's exactly right. Yeah, the observer has no role to play. It's, you know, Like I said, could have been a rock, could have been a video camera, but it's it's actually just the air molecules and photons of light in the box with the cat that branches the universe.
0: So what that implies, then, if you shorting your cat out, like our actual lives, that across the
1: branches, like I am alive and dead. Well, it's not you. (laughs) There are. No, it is. It is is in a sense, though. It's in the same sense that your identical twin is you.
0: Yeah, I mean, but that what you've just hit on there is identical twins are super weird and creepy.
1: (laughs) No, what I've hit on is worse. What I've hit on is the fact that you now is not the same as you five minutes ago right? These are different things. We, we have this convenient story that we tell of the continuity of personal identity over time. And it's convenient because in the world we observe, it's a pretty darn good way of talking. And many worlds, suggests that we should abandon that at the fundamental level, because what happens is one person now evolves into many, many copies just a short while later. And those copies, I would argue, are all different people. They came from the same person, but they're now different people. And we should update our ways of talking to reflect that. But so it's funny because something you emphasize in
0: the book is that some of this language is just for our convenience. So these aren't copies. There's no me that was more fundamental than any of the others. It's just many versions realities but yes in some of these schrodinger realities um the 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 entity you would understand as having continuity with prime me yep right from the first moment i was uh whatever is gone so like yes. so the thing that i represent in different realities is simultaneously alive and dead that is correct well
1: <laughs> <It's> weird. <laughs> um. You know, in some sense, look, I mean, I mean, I think we should just try to calibrate our expectations here. Right. A few hundred years ago, we didn't have like electricity. <laughs> you know, we didn't know that there were other stars that, that like the sun. Right. You know, we, we knew so little and we've learned so much about the fundamental nature of reality that if we had asked ourselves 500 years ago, what will physics and the story that it tells about the universe be like 500 years hence, we should have said it will be bizarre and counterintuitive and tough to swallow because we there's so much to the world that we don't get used to in our everyday lives and that evolution has not prepared us to think about. You know, our brains are not built for thinking about Hilbert space and wave functions. And so, of course, it seems weird. If it seemed natural, if someone told you the fundamental nature of reality, you went, oh, yeah, I guess that make sense, you would feel cheated. Uh, There's something to that.
0: I've said on on this show and others before that one reason I don't like, for instance, simulation hypotheses is I don't think they're weird enough. Yeah, exactly. Whatever's going on is going to be so much more than like, oh, it's me, but bigger. Right. Right? Like I'm a computer (laughs) programmer. It's me, but bigger. (laughs) Yep. Um, That it it strikes me as sort of obvious. We're going to need to be more creative. Um, Let me do the same thing with the double slit experiment. Um, I have read a description of this experiment. I like conservatively estimate two dozen times and I
1: kind of get it, but don't totally get it. So explain the double slit experiment. Well, let me, let me first motivate it a little bit. The point is that you might very well think that there is something called where the electron is, and that you should just take the wave function and think of it as a probability distribution. I mean, technically, you take the wave function, you square it to get the probability distribution. But why should you think of the wave function as something real at all? That's that's the point which we're trying to get at the double slit experiment. And so the point is, when you take a, a wave and you send it through a barrier where you've cut two slits in the barrier, if it were just if it were not a wave, it were a set of classical particles. Some of them would go through one slit, some of them would go through the other slit. And so if you detected where the particles were on the other side, you would see two little lines reflecting the two slits the particles could have gone through. If it's a wave that goes through instead, the thing about waves is they can go up and down. And when they go through both slits, they wave on the other side of the slits, and sometimes they constructively interfere. So two waves coming from each slit will move in the same direction and go higher, other times they will destructively interfere. And then a wave that came from one side is tall, but the wave going from the other side is down and they exactly cancel. And so to do that, you need to imagine that number one, the wave is real. Number two, it can be positive or negative. So it's not a probability distribution, which can only be positive, right? And so in the double slit, you actually do this experiment and you see an interference pattern on the other side of the two slits. So you see the wave-like nature. You see what you'd expect to see if the wave function were a real thing, not just an expression of our ignorance. And then you say, well, then you complicate your life because this is what we'd like to do. Uh, You say, well, what if I look to see which slit the electron goes through. What if I put a little camera on the slits and I watch the electrons go through because you're telling me the electron is a wave when I'm not looking at it, so I'm not gonna look at it. And when you look at it, the interference pattern goes away. You no longer see the waviness of the electron going on the other side. When you observe it, it becomes more particle-like. And that's... Okay, so
0: uh, hold on. I want to stop you here on this yeah. because
1: the so one <laughs> thing to
0: note is we're not describing an equation here. We're describing an actual experiment, which is important. So it's a
1: physical thing that, that scientists have done, as I understand it. I mean, to be fair, we talked about this experiment because we were sure what the outcome would be long before we did it. <laughs> but yes, by now it's been done.
0: Given how easy and constant it is for waves to get entangled with things, et cetera, et cetera, why is it that putting the camera on versus just having the slit does it, right? Like, why do you see what I'm asking here? Why isn't oh, something yeah. else hitting the thing so it collapses down into a, a a particle along the way? Like, how is this experiment actually separating the camera and the slit worlds? Because you would think both of them would it, it, it include some kind of collision or entanglement.
1: Well, that that's the important difference is that collisions do not necessarily lead to entanglement. So the, and this is one of the reasons why the experiment is hard to actually do, because they can if you're a sloppy experimenter. Uh, but the point is, you just build the slits to be sort of big, massive things, which the electron passes through without disturbing. And in that case, the electron's wave function is affected by the slits, but does not become entangled with them. Whereas when you detect it, you specifically go out of your way to become entangled with the electron. You want to say, I saw it go through the left slit or I saw it go through the right slit. So that's, that's one of the important things about how Many Worlds explains the outcome of quantum measurements is that it really is entanglement, the, the two wave functions of the electron and the thing observing it become related in a fundamental way.
0: I think this is probably a good time, or maybe long ago would have been a good time, to, to talk about entanglement. Can you just define entanglement?
1: Yeah, again, this is uh, something that came about of the from the same uh, correspondence between Einstein and Schrodinger. Uh, you know, if you think that the electron is like a wave, but it's just a wave where you don't know what where you're going to observe it, right? It's It's telling you the probability of different measurement outcomes. So, okay, but now imagine that you have a nucleus that's going to decay. It's going to break into two pieces. And those two pieces are going to go, because of conservation of momentum, they're going to go in opposite directions, right? The nucleus is just sitting there. It has zero velocity. It's not doing anything. So when it decays into two sub pieces, they have to go off back to back, right? But in quantum mechanics, both of these two sub pieces have not a direction, they have a wave function. So both of the little pieces, both the little particles that come out of the nucleus have wave functions that spread out like in a spherical pattern, right? And so what must be the case is that if you observe the location of one of those particles that came out, instantly you know the direction the other one came out in. Because you knew they went back to back. You don't know what direction either one of them went in, but you knew they went back to back. And that's entanglement. It's the fact that even though you have two particles which you can separately observe, there's a relationship between them. There's an intimate relationship such that when you observe one of them, you instantly learn about the properties of the other one. What is a condition that
0: creates entanglement versus a condition that doesn't? Like you mentioned a minute ago that not all collision would
1: create entanglement. So like when does something become entangled? The correct answer, which is completely useless, is when the Schrodinger equation says so. (laughs) But the point is that you can think of these quantum systems as being in superpositions, right? So a superposition means were I to observe it, there's different answers I could get, like the photon going left and the photon going right. So two systems become entangled when one system interacts with the other in a way that would be different depending on those two different things that were in superposition. Right. So when the photon in the beam splitter from your universe splitter app goes either left or right, it's not yet entangled. But then we put particle detectors, we put photon detectors like a camera on the left side and on the right side. And that camera will either observe it on the left or the right. So it matters whether it went left or right. And that's when the entanglement happens. Entanglement is when the two possibilities described by the wave function are treated differently by the thing that's interacting with. I know that this is, um, going to be annoying i still have trouble with
0: the the cameras and their (laughs) and their role in this because i i I think i actually probably buy the many worlds interpretation but it's still i guess it's probably in the way we talk about there's something failing in the language for me but what in what you just said it's just hard for me to understand what role the cameras were playing as i understand it like you're doing something to the to the wave that may, that forces it to split but i don't understand really what the camera is like if i if the camera just snaps a picture of it that's enough is it actually the snapping of a picture but a rock could do it too like
1: i know we've gone through this but but i am dumb no actually no 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 there is something important here that we haven't quite touched on which is that the point of entanglement is you don't have a separate wave function for this electron and that photon and this camera and whatever, there is only one wave function for everything in the universe all at once. And this one wave function can have the property that different sub pieces within it are or are not entangled with each other. Okay, And what that means is that in the real quantum description of the world, whenever we're doing an experiment with like, a you know, looking at a photon going left or right, there's a whole bunch of the world that we're not keeping track of, but that is technically in the wave of the universe, right? Like literally everything else in the universe is, is in part of that wave function and usually we just ignore it. So in Schrodinger's cat, for example, when I mentioned very briefly, there's particles in the box along with the cat. There are the, there's the air that the cat breathes. There are the photons of light that are bouncing around inside the box. Nobody keeps track of those things, but they're there and they can interact with the cat. You know, if the cat's alive or dead, it will be physically in a different location So some air molecules will or will not bump into it, okay? depending on whether the cat's alive or dead. And we call all that stuff, all that extra set of things that we don't keep track of, we call that the environment. And the environment is something that once you become entangled with the environment, that's when the wave function branches. But the point is, a single electron all by itself in an atom does not become entangled with the environment. It's too tiny. Nothing nothing hits it. But a big macroscopic thing, like a camera or a cat, those are being hit and interacting with the environment all the time. This is why, in the real world, according to many worlds, we never see superpositions, quantum mechanical superpositions of macroscopic objects, because they are constantly interacting with their environment, whereas a microscopic object can remain shielded and isolated from its environment for long enough to be quantum mechanical. So that's actually a crucial feature. The only thing that cameras are doing in that discussion is be big macroscopic things that necessarily become entangled with the environment.
0: Uh, That's that's very helpful. And then something that I don't know if I understood this correctly from from your book and some others I've read, but you have a really interesting discussion of how Talking about the universe branching is very helpful for us. It's like a helpful way of putting it into a language category that we understand, but that some of this is also a little bit misleading in the sense that we keep using things like the term universe or worlds or, or, or branching. But to your point about the wave function, like what you are saying is that there is only one universe right. and it has these weird properties where it does this branching thing but the reason a lot of these things work is that it really is still one. And the pieces are entangled with each other in in that way. That's why you get some of these faster than light speed movement. I think I just gave a very poor explanation of that, but can you either correct <laughs> what was wrong with it or give a better or give a better version of what I just tried to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, this goes back to Einstein and and their pals being annoyed at quantum mechanics as it was in the 1930s. And so Einstein and his friends Podolsky and Rosen wrote a paper in 1935, where they basically were the first to point out that entanglement is a big deal. I'm not sure whether they actually were the first to, to point out that there is such a thing as entanglement, but they certainly emphasized the, the crucialness of it. So if you imagine, for example, two particles that, are, that have spin. This is a a feature that elementary particles have, like electrons, where if you measure the spin, you will only get one of two answers. It's spin up or spin down. Those are the only two possibilities. But of course, typically you have a wave function, which means there's some superposition of spin up and spin down, and you'll have a probability of getting either answer. So entanglement, as Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen explained it, means that you can have two particles where you don't know what the spin of either one is, but you know that they're spinning in opposite directions. So you know that if you measure the spin of one particle, you get that it's spin up, the other one is instantly spin down. And the typical story that is told by physicists is you have two physicists, Alice and Bob, and Alice has a spin here that is entangled with Bob's spin. So when Alice in her laboratory measures the spin, it seems that the state of Bob's spin instantly changes. Before she did her measurement, there was a superposition of spin up and spin down. And after, we know what Bob is going to get for his spin result, even if Bob had hopped on an interstellar rocket and flown to Alpha Centauri and was light years away right? So this is what Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen were bugged by, and they they had a much more sophisticated argument as to why you should be bugged by it, and it's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. And, of course, what I would say is when Alice measures her spin, nothing happens at Bob. What happens is the universe splits into one where Alice saw spin up, one where Alice saw spin down, and those are correlated with the versions of Bob that she would see if she goes to visit him. I want to stay in the
0: the Alice and Bob example for a minute, because I read that a few times and and sort of got it. What are Alice and
1: Bob measuring and why is it entangled? What they're measuring is the spin. So if you send an electron through a magnetic field, it's like a little spinning top, like a little magnet, and it will either be deflected upward or downward, depending on whether it's spin up or spin down. So this is a famous experiment, which was actually done that showed that electrons really do have spin. and. The two spins, Alice's and Bob's, are entangled because they made them entangled. So you can do physics. You can put two particles into a state where they are entangled with each other. This is kind of a big deal because if you want to build a quantum computer, the whole point is to make all the little elements in your computer be entangled with each other.
0: And so you entangle these two, and so Bob and Alice are measuring them sort of instantly next to
1: each other, but they're somehow far away? They can, or, you know, Bob cannot measure his at all. The point is just that According to the story, when Alice measures hers, we we now know instantly what Bob is going to see whenever he measures his. Okay, and the happy part or the sad part, depending on what your predilections are, is that Bob doesn't know. So we know, because we're here next to Alice and we see that she got spin up, so we know Bob will get spin down. So this bugged Einstein because it seems that Bob's particle changed its state instantaneously faster than the speed of light. But because Bob doesn't know what Alice got, you can't actually use that phenomenon to send a signal to communicate faster than the speed of light. So it seems like quantum mechanics is sort of obeying the letter of the law, but breaking its spirit a little bit. Got it.
0: And I'm actually glad, because I think it'll be good to move into some of the practical application here, that you brought up quantum computing. Um, Can you talk a bit about what a quantum computer
1: just is and how how it differs from a normal computer and why that would make it more powerful? Yeah, I mean, basically, a quantum computer takes advantage of the fact that quantum systems have wave functions, right? So a classical computer... It's a set of bits and the bits are either zero or one and the bits get manipulated by some electronics and so they do a calculation and you add two numbers or divide or whatever you want to do a quantum computer, instead of instead of classical bits that are zero or one, you have qubits, quantum bits, and they are in arbitrary superpositions of zero or one. So even at the level of a single qubit, in principle, it's a lot more rich than a single classical bit. Instead of just zero or one, it's some combination of both. But then when you have several qubits together, It's not that each qubit is doing something separately. They can also be entangled. So there's a huge increase in the richness of what is going on in a set of qubits versus a set of classical bits. And it's kind of like the computer is trying out different possibilities in all the different parts of the wave function of the qubits all at once, rather than just doing one thing deterministically once at a time.
0: How? Uh, This is the part I always get stuck on with quantum
1: computing. How are we capable of manufacturing qubits? Well, the world is quantum mechanical. There are qubits all around you. There are qubits in your body. Every electron has a spin that is either spin up or spin down. So it could be used as a qubit. The problem is I I left out one vocabulary word when we talked about the cat in the box interacting with its environment or the cameras being big macroscopic things interacting with their environment. That process is known as by the word decoherence. When you have a quantum system that is in a superposition and then it becomes entangled with its environment and the wave function of the universe branches, decoherence is the thing that happened. And in each world now, the things that were initially entangled no longer are because you have sort of measured them by interacting with the environment. And the problem is with quantum computers that as soon as you get a bunch of qubits together, they start looking big and macroscopic. And it's harder to shield them from the environment and decoherence keeps happening. So the big technological challenge in building a quantum computer is finding a way to manipulate quantum mechanical bits in such a way that the photons in the room don't spoil everything by becoming entangled with them. And different companies, you know, Google, Microsoft, whatever, are trying different technologies to embody the idea of a qubit in such a way that it doesn't keep decohering by bumping into its environment. Yeah, but that's exactly what I mean, that it seems to me that it would be extraordinarily hard. And
0: I guess the answer probably is it is extraordinarily hard, which is why we don't have too many of them. But very, very, very hard for us at our existing in the classical version of the universe that we experience, at the very least, to somehow shield a part of it that we are manipulating with enough of these qubits to actually... Get some real horsepower out of it to keep that held in in quantum state, right? I mean, to everything we've been speaking about, like the my, my sort of glib, or quantum beings having a classical experience, we are having a classical experience to shield part of it as quantum for a long period of time. Such as you have a usable piece of machinery to break every piece of encryption on the planet. It, it just, I, I know that. Any The old line, any technology sufficiently advanced becomes indistinguishable
1: from magic, <laughs> but this is a real quality of that. Well, yeah. I mean, you put your finger on it. This is why quantum computing is very, very hard. I mean, it might be surprising if someone tells you that quantum computing is hard because computing happens all around us and the world is quantum mechanical. What's so hard about that? Well, the point is, it's not just computing in some quantum system but taking advantage of entanglement and entanglement is a very fragile thing when two different parts of the universe are entangled if something else bumps into them you ruin it and this is why you need to have you know giant refrigerators keeping everything cool so no stray photons land on them and it's still really difficult and with every new qubit you add it becomes even more difficult and we're not completely 100 percent sure how useful it's going to be when all this is said and done. I mean, there are some problems that are much easier to solve on a quantum computer than a classical one. But we're not really sure how big that set of problems is. We have some examples that are famous, like factoring big numbers. But maybe it's, it's certainly conceivable that the set of problems is, is kind of tiny and classical computers are still going to dominate 100 years from now. So something in in your book and in all books on quantum
0: physics that, that I read is that that it emphasizes is that one reason we know this works is we are not quantum computing but quantum physics and mechanics is that we're using it right now we use it in GPS and a host of other applications, so you can just pick whichever one you want. But uh, I think to to bring the discussion into sort of a grounded place to to close it, like what is a way that we practically use quantum mechanics, such as What sounds like this very kind of abstract discipline is actually something we're using to make not just constant predictions, but to change the way we live our everyday lives.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are examples. I'm not really the best person to talk once you get into the actual applied practical things in life. But, you know, lasers and all sorts of um, tiny microscopic uh, electronic components do rely on quantum mechanics. Transistors fundamentally rely on quantum mechanics. But I actually like to point to, rather than a technological use, just the need for quantum mechanics to explain features of the world that we see every day. Like the fact that the sun shines is because of quantum mechanics, because you take protons inside the sun and you fuse them together and emit light. That is ultimately a quantum mechanical phenomenon. The fact that the chair you're sitting on remains solid to explain that we need quantum mechanics. Why? Sorry. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you you, you've seen the picture of the the cartoon of the atom, right, with a little nucleus and their electrons orbiting around it. That's completely wrong, that picture. I mean, I love it. I use it myself. But if you really had a little solar system that was the atom, those electrons would give off light because they're moving. They're moving up and down. They should radiate and lose the energy and fall into the nucleus. And you can calculate how quickly it should happen. It happens in about a hundred billionth of a second for every atom and the reason why it doesn't happen is because electrons are not little particles. electrons are waves, and there's a size sort of a minimum size wave you can squeeze into the atom so if it weren't for the fact that electrons are really quantum mechanical, you couldn't build solid material things that's the importance of quantum mechanics
0: Wait, wait can I hold on this for a minute because i if I understand it correctly and A hundred percent, I definitely don't. (laughs) But if I understand correctly, it it helps with something. You'll sometimes see this. It's said, right? That like the atom is 99% empty space or something like that. Yep. And what you're saying, if I understand it, is that, yeah, maybe once everything has collapsed down or decohered, it is. But in fact, as a as a wave or field, it isn't. It's kind of in superposition. Yeah. And that that is true for the physical objects I'm in, that somehow they are not they have not all I think it'd be my intuition. of This would be that everything I deal with in my life has collapsed down. But you're saying it hasn't that a lot
1: of things I'm sitting on a bunch of waves Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, remember, the collapse happens when you observe something, that is to say, when you interact with it in a way that you become entangled with it. And even then, you know, it instantly sort of relaxes back. The electron does not want to be located at one point. It wants to be spread out. So the particular thing that is you is a set of electrons and protons and neutrons with wave functions that are spread out into a relatively low energy configuration. And you absolutely need the principles of quantum mechanics to make any sense of that whatsoever. And I will I will put a plug here in, I started since we're in uh, lockdown, I started a video series that I'm doing on YouTube on the biggest ideas in the universe, where I try to do simple explanations of some of these. And the fact that atoms are not mostly empty space is what I talked about in the last video. They're wave functions and they have a size. That's what makes the size of the chair the size of you, the size of the atom.
0: Uh, we will definitely put a link to that video in in the show notes. Um, let me ask you one other question before we bring this to, to a close, which is, What's a or what are a couple planned experiment in physics right now that you think will actually push the boundary
1: of what we understand or will confirm something important that we need to understand? Well, there's a good news, bad news situation there. Uh, the good news is there's lots of experiments being done that are really cool and exciting. Uh, looking at what happens near the event horizons of black holes with the uh, Event Horizon Telescope, looking at the looking at with even higher resolution at the signals from the Big Bang and the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, looking for new particles at higher energies at particle accelerators, etc. On and on. The bad news is. I can't promise or even give you 50-50 odds that any of these are going to bring a specific surprising new result. We're in this very weird situation in physics right now where we have a bunch of theories in gravity, in particle physics, um, in quantum mechanics, in cosmology, and they all work. They all fit the data. We are not faced with these looming large disagreements between theory and observation, but... We don't think that the theories are right. (laughs) With the possible exception to quantum mechanics, we think that all of our other theories are just partially right. You know, they're, they're approximations to something that is better. They're internally inconsistent. You know, gravity and quantum mechanics don't fit well together, for example. Particle physics works, but only up to certain energies and not beyond that. So we need to go beyond the current theories, and we don't have a way to do an experiment that is guaranteed to help us. So there's fishing expeditions going on. We, we have various places we haven't looked yet. We're going to try to look there, cross our fingers, and hope to find something exciting. I think that is a good place to bring things
0: to a close. So let me ask you the question we always use to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Yes, I thought about this. You know, I've written books and I am biting my tongue. So I'm not going to recommend just reading my own books because that's that's implicit. So I have one uh, by Janine Ismail, who was on my podcast, Mindscape, recently, and she is a philosopher of science at uh, Columbia. She wrote a book called How Physics Makes Us Free, and it's about the intersection of physics, fundamental laws of nature, and human scale ideas about free will and agency and morality and things like that. And so it's a wonderful exploration uh, at a very high level of those ideas. Another is by my friend Jan Levin, who is another podcast guest, called How the Universe Got Its Spots, Diary of a Finite Time in a Finite Space. And I love this book very much because it's the best example I've ever read of something that combines pedagogy of cutting edge science in this case cosmology in the early universe with a deeply human story like it really is a diary as well as an exploration of cosmology and you know she's a good enough writer to pull that off And then finally, uh, I'll be a little bit shameless, and I will suggest The Calculus Diaries by Jennifer Willette, who is my wife. Even if I don't recommend my own books, there's no rule against not recommending my wife's books. So The Calculus Diaries is subtitled How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. And it's basically an English major, which Jennifer was, who never took math or science in college, discovering a love for it later in life and sort of. Trying to bite the bullet and learn something about calculus, derivatives and integrals and learning it as she does by taking roller coaster rides and going to Vegas and playing craps and really putting it to work in everyday contexts.
0: Funny. I've always had, I've talked about it on the podcast before, because my dad is a mathematician and I did not make it very far in math in high school to say nothing in college. <laughs> um, I've always had the ambition to go back and learn calculus. So that actually sounds like a very good book for me. Yeah. Um, Sean Carroll, your podcast is Mindscape. Your book is something deeply hidden. Thank you very much. Sure.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on Ezra.
0: Thank you to Sean Carroll for being here. Thank you to all of you for giving me great questions, great insights um, in in email. Um, As always, my email is EzraKlineShow at Vox.com. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Show Vox Media Podcast Network production.